This episode of Central Carolina Journal contains content that may be unsettling to some. Topics discussed include human trafficking, sexual assault, and homicide. Listener discretion is advised. This is Central Carolina Journal, a program that highlights events, programs, and slices of life happening throughout our communities. I'm Fred Brucker. Thanks for joining us. Slavery was abolished in the United States back in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Because of that, we don't tend to think a whole lot about people being subjected to situations by others against their own will. But it still happens around the world and stateside in the form of human trafficking. People are forced or manipulated into indentured servitude, doing all different types of work. Everything from hard labor to working in the sex trade is imposed on victims at the pleasure and the profit of their captors. It's not just hidden in dark alleys or far off compounds. It may be happening right out in the open, hidden in plain sight. Lantern Rescue, based in Asheboro, is an organization that works to dismantle human trafficking operations in various parts of the world, working with governments and police forces to catch suspected traffickers in the act, then to empower the trafficked victims to find the help they need to live a life that is free from bondage. I spoke with Whitney Miller, the public engagement director for Lantern Rescue, to discuss the various ways that human trafficking is happening around the world, the role that Americans have had in these things, and what is being done in the fight against these things. Once again, we will warn that the conversation is going to focus on subject matter that some may find difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. So Whitney, I guess first I should say welcome back yeah. to CCCC. Thank you actually you. took a couple of classes with us in the past. I did. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. But uh, your main background in education was at Campbell University. Tell us what you studied at Campbell. I actually began in, in Little Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, and I actually went to Campbell for Trust and Wealth Management. And so I entered into the corporate world for a little while and then just felt called to an industry or a a workplace that was a little bit more fulfilling um, and what that looked like to me happened to be teaching. <laughs> so yeah. I pursued my licensure and I did take some of the courses here at CCCC. So that was a really neat kind of piece to intertwine there. And I fell into the teaching industry. And for me, it was probably the most interesting seven years of my life recently. So so, so what did you do in teaching? Was it an extension of the things that you learned in the business world or did you embark on something completely different? No, it was actually an extension. I taught marketing and business. I had all the cool classes that the kids actually got to sign up for that wanted to take them. They didn't just get thrown in, although there were some here and there. Just happened to end up in my class. But yeah, I got to teach the good stuff, the fun stuff, you know, and got to make it my own and bring in that kind of business perspective that you can't find in a textbook. So that was a really neat. Hmm. I may need to keep you on speed dial because I (laughs) teach the broadcast sales class here at the college. Monday morning, 8 a.m. It's the class no one wants to come to. So (laughs) maybe, maybe we need someone that brings a little more flair to it. (laughs) But uh, teaching is not what you do now. That is not why we brought you here. You're actually representing an organization called Lantern Rescue, which deals a lot with the issue of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So I need to ask, how did you go Mm -hmm. from business 
on into teaching and now dealing with this rather serious and important issue. Mm. Um, You know, that would probably be a couple of episodes on the radio if I talked the whole way through that. But uh, long story short, sitting in the classroom, I recognized really what our youth are up against. You know, I taught high school. And to see some of the things that they were dealing with far surpasses what we ever dealt with at that age, sitting in a high school classroom. You know, to hear some of the stories of what these kids had gone through, um, I always felt very compassionate towards wanting them to recognize their value and worth and helping them realize that it's not established by your newsfeed on Instagram, right? It's established um, by just a much bigger thing than that. Um, And there's so much more than that. So to see that depreciation of how they felt about themselves concerned me initially. So that began the prompting. Um, I actually also had a student in my class that um, my first experience ever face-to-face with someone that had been trafficked Mm. was a student in my classroom who did not even realize that she had been trafficked. At the age of two years old, her mother had left her at the mother's drug dealer's house for payment for drugs. And so she had become currency at that point at two years old. And that began to shape and define what she valued herself as. And she ran a rough path. And, you know, I actually am still in contact with her. She is, she will forever be that one student that will forever be on my heart and on my mind. And it's neat that her story is now a part of my story. Mm. So so you said something there that was really intriguing to me, that a person that was mm. being trafficked did not realize right. that they were being trafficked. So perhaps maybe we should back up sure. and let's define the term. What is mm. human trafficking? You know, that's such a broad term, actually. And so often we relate it specifically to uh, sex trafficking, right? Mm-hmm. That is the most common understanding of human trafficking, but there are so many more avenues of trafficking. So you have things like organ harvesting, right? When someone's organs are taken out of them and been sold on the black market, that's when the person has become currency. And that's a way to kind of associate it, right? It's as soon as someone becomes the currency. So we have labor trafficking. That's another one where a lot of times, and we see this in a lot of other countries as well, but it's also here within the U.S., especially when it comes to immigration, you have people come up and they're seeking jobs and they are told that they are going to be working in this capacity to pay for their rent or pay for their food. Um, And they're never actually paid and they become really a slave to debt bondage. And unfortunately, that also makes them very vulnerable to the sex trafficking and other means of exploitation. We also deal, especially in this industry, with arranged marriages as a form of trafficking. Mm. People are brought into trafficking for voodoo rituals. So it becomes a, uh, when people become currency, that's when you can begin to associate that trafficking. You know, there tends to be a lot of confusion between things like sexual abuse and sex trafficking. And If we go into talking about the way those things are prosecuted in the court system, you have to know the difference because one will stand and one won't. When we talk about getting the bad guy and having him put away or she put away, you really got to know those differences. And so it really becomes the exchange of currency. There's a financial gain in the actual act of the trafficking. 
So what I'm hearing here, and I've always kind of originally thought that when you talk about human trafficking, mm-hmm. that perhaps it was just a new term for slavery or mm-hmm. for indentured servanthood. Mm-hmm. But what you're explaining is something that's a whole lot more nuanced than that in so many different layers. Yes, there are. Honestly, we probably don't even have time to peel back all the layers that we've seen in little in little ways. But if we're looking at it on a big scale, and it absolutely is slavery. You know, I mean, these people are in slavery. They are in bondage. It's sometimes physically and sometimes, you know, emotionally. And and, I mean, there's so many avenues to it. Matter of fact, there is 40.3 million people currently enslaved today. That is the largest count of slavery that's ever been known. And that's a worldwide number? That's a worldwide number. Wow. Yeah. And I would imagine that when we talk about these sort of things, a lot of what your organization does is to deal with some of the situations where there's a lot of the root cause and the beginnings of where some of these people are in danger of being trafficked. So you're doing a lot of stuff around the world, different world areas. Talk a little bit about some of the scenarios that you have dealt with, that your organization rather has dealt with and the things that you've encountered. Absolutely. It really, it's been different in different regions. You know, so we currently operate on a global scale. Like you said, we do a lot on the global side of things and working with different areas and countries. Our primary countries we work in are West Africa, the Caribbean, the Middle East, Asia Pacific, and with the war that's gone on Ukraine. That has been an area we've also actually just, you know, walked into. We walked into that initially as counter-human trafficking or anti-human trafficking. Typically, we operate in the counter-human trafficking. There's a lot of terms here, right? So mm-hmm. typically, we operate in counter-human trafficking, not anti-human trafficking. And there's a, there's a little bit of a difference there. Anti is more giving out of information, preparing people for the ways that they could be groomed, so what to watch out for, right? Mm-hmm. Counter-human trafficking is when we go in and it's already in action. It's already happening. And so that is what we are best skilled at. But with everything that happened in Ukraine, there was an opportunity immediately to get information out to the women and children that would be crossing the border there in Ukraine because they were very vulnerable. So anytime there's a vulnerability, you know, there's good guys, but there's also bad guys lurking, right? And so we needed to get over there and kind of make those things happen. So within the first three days of the war, we were there. We had people there with information as people were coming across the border there to let them know, you know, trustworthy resources that they could contact and go to. We have built a system to where we've kind of got tracking of where they're going or where they're headed. So that way, when things finally come back together, hopefully uniting families will be a little bit easier. And then came a humanitarian aid need. In cases of crisis, there's always that need for food, shelter, and clothing, the basic you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Those basic needs are required. And so we worked on putting a warehouse together. And currently, we have served so far, 37,000 people through that warehouse, and we are seeing about 500 to 600 people a day. So in efforts to counter human trafficking or create anti-human trafficking material, that's where we stepped in Ukraine. So it looks a little bit different than any of the other areas we operate. Mm-hmm. Typically, we're coming into some of the other areas where there's already an issue in place. There's already trafficking occurring. So we're kind of working through that process. We do see a lot of the sex trafficking and labor trafficking are probably the two primary things that we deal with on the most consistent 
in the most consistent way, right? Mm-hmm. Our West Africa region, there's a lot of labor trafficking that goes on there. I can think of a couple of stories where we find these kids and they were literally taking out of their family's field where they are, they're working, they're taking out of the field and, and kidnapped and put into forced labor. You know, and we've worked on a large scale with that of kids that, I mean, at all ages, and we're talking about six and seven year olds, right? I mean, I can't even imagine, you consider the heat, you consider the lack of food and hydration, all of those things, right? And the person that's trafficking them doesn't really care because they're a commodity and Mm. they're a replaceable commodity. You know, there's a village down the road that they can go and grab another one if this one doesn't make it, right? And so, man, when we put that kind of price tag on children and people in general, what injustice that is, you know? So that's our West Africa. And then there's also a lot of um, sex trafficking as well in the West Africa regions. Voodoo rituals, there's actually two months out of the year where voodoo rituals in some of the countries that we operate in are at an all-time high. With those voodoo rituals, typically there are sacrifices. And Mm -hmm. so we see people and children um, sacrificed or being trafficked for those sacrifices. That tends to be a time where we really have to step in and step up even more than normal. And I have to say, when I first heard you talk about this, Mm because we had met previously and I heard a seminar that you did, the fact that there are groups out there that are actively doing sacrifices and that the organ harvesting that you mentioned earlier becomes an element of that, that Mm -hmm. was just something that completely blew my mind. And I've never heard anyone here stateside talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's not as customary stateside as it is in some of our other areas that we operate. And so I agree with you initially hearing those things. I'm like, man, this sounds like a Hollywood movie. There's no way this is actually happening. But when we take into consideration things like the black market, and then you put into play the idea of your child being sick or someone you care about being sick and the wait list for organs, there are people willing to pay. But what they don't recognize is the price that they pay financially is for the life of a human being. Mm. One of our operators said this so well, and it's not just with organ harvesting or organ, you know, that side of trafficking, but through trafficking altogether. If we were talking about drugs, people could get it, right? We can associate things and we can understand the trafficking and movement of drugs and that industry, and we can understand that it's bad, right? But when we put people as the drug or the currency, we don't know how to make it click. You know, we don't know how to really understand what that means and the fact that there are other people out there that are capable of placing a price tag on a young child, a woman, a boy. I mean, it's incomprehensible, truly, but it's happening. And the more we close our eyes to it, the more it's going to continue to happen. I mean, if we were to look at the numbers, trafficking, child exploitation, those things over the past three years, the numbers have floored out the roof, right? We are doubling what it was before. I mean, they're not just happening in other countries either, you know? They're here too, especially the labor and sex trafficking within the U.S. We just have the capacity and ability and networks of people stateside to help the anti-counter part of it, right? Mm. We talk about a third world country. They don't have the ability to put a force of people together to specifically put towards this. They got a lot of other things going on, right? And so for our organization, that's where we kind of come in and say, we're going to put this together for you and see what we can make happen. And I want to talk a little more about what you all are doing over there. But you did bring up an important aspect. There are things that are happening here in the United States. And I've even seen stories about particular instances where there's been intercepts that have happened in North Carolina, especially along the I-95 corridor to a certain extent along the I-40 corridor. And when I think of people 
considering the mm. issues of human trafficking. They do think of it as an international phenomena and not so much something that we need to worry about here in the United States. Right. So number one, do we need to worry? Mm. And whether we do or not, should we even care? Mm. Absolutely, we should care, right? So let me bring this to real life for you. One of the things that's on an all-time rise is CSAM, is what it's called. It's child sexual abuse material. That is where we see things like child pornography at an all-time high. Those kids are, in a lot of situations, have been trafficked into that, right? And so if we think that that is not here stateside, uh, <laughs> I mean, the U.S. is one of the top five consumers of child pornography, so if we've got people consuming the profits of trafficking or the pictures, in this case, from trafficking, videos, whatever, there's a problem right there all in itself, right? And so there's something that we need to have our eyes open to in that regard. You know, you talked about 95. When we talk about areas where trafficking occurs, consider vulnerable places. Because anywhere there's a vulnerability, there's obviously a bad guy lurking, right? Somebody willing to take a hold of that and exploit. So something like 95, that's a main highway. You know, you've got people traveling back and forth. We know the stigmas around some of those areas and just the things that um, the population in those areas is sometimes a little bit difficult. And you've got people that are going from state to state. So now you have the accessibility of grabbing someone. It's not necessarily like the movies you see, right, where someone jerks your kid up and takes them away and you never see them again. A lot of what we see stateside are things like familial trafficking, so somebody in your family takes sexually explicit pictures of a child in your family and sells them, right? Again, a people currency is what it becomes. Now you're putting a price tag on a person. And so anytime you see that, that's trafficking. And that's happening all the time. In little old North Carolina, in, you know, whatever little town you live in, those things are happening. That should bring a reality, a scary reality to us. It's hard because I think of all the things that we see and I'm like, man, what advice can I offer to other parents in that regard? And man, the biggest thing I can offer to parents that are listening, especially, is one, let's, let's, you know, the cellular devices, right? The tablets, the things that we're willing to hand over. And I get it because I'm a parent, right? Sometimes we just want a moment of quiet, but we've given our children an opportunity for the bad guys to walk in the front door. And we see that a lot. There's been an uptick in things like that ever since um, really COVID kind of prompted a lot of it because we were all at home, right? And so the kids were handed computers to do all their homework on and all their things on. But with those computers came internet access and things that they were not typically accessing or they became access points for the bad guys to the kids, right? So if we're bringing it to a reality stateside, I would say that that is something that should concern us all. The accessibility that the bad guys have to our children. Mm -hmm. It's not going anywhere, but there are people in place that are working on the tech side of that to really kind of crack down on these bad guys. But we have to be vigilant. You know, if we stop worrying as much about somebody scooping your kid up and kidnapping them and consider the 15 year old boy they think they're talking to on Snapchat or Instagram or, you know, whatever, consider that because that 15 year old boy might be a 45 year old man with intentions that we can't even begin to fathom. You know, that really opens up the debate of how we use the <clears throat> online space. All of us are concerned about privacy and mm -hmm. what Amazon or Google can see us doing. Right. But 
there's so much more out there, as, as you just highlighted, that we ought to be watchful for Absolutely. as well. Yeah. Let's move on in talking about your organization in particular, sure. Lantern Rescue. Yeah. And you are out there in these different world areas. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your presence in those areas and the sort of functions that you're doing right. and what sort of organizations that you're working with in that process. Sure, yes. You know, we operate a little bit different than other organizations out there. And the reason I say that is because we've kind of got a four-tier system here. So we're not just going to go in and raid a brothel or uh, in some situations, nightclub or whatever. We're not just going to go in there, kick down some doors, pull some girls out and say, all right, hey, it was nice knowing you and then walk away from it because that's really just the beginning of it all, right? We want to see sustainability in these countries. You know, the heart's desire of our organization is that we truly work ourselves out of a job one day. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we create such sustainable models in each of these countries, each of these regions that we work in that they don't need us there anymore, that they've got it under control. That would be ideal, right? Everything from training to prosecution and aftercare, we want them to be able to understand how to make all of that happen. So what is our part in that? Well, initially for us, we start with training the task force. Okay, so what does that look like? Well, sometimes it's sending our operators that are stateside here to work with the highest level of SWAT or government entity that is equipped enough in the tactical side of things to learn those operations. And so our operators will go over there for weeks at a time and train up those guys on things like markmanship, hostage recovery, what it's going to look like to raid a building. Because, you know, there's been places we've gone where if you were to talk about a holster, right, they've got their weapon to holster it, they're using duct tape. You know, I mean, so, but we work with what we have and that's what they've been doing. And so really for us, it's finding the people that have the heart for change in their country and a desire to eradicate the evil that's there. And so we work on training them in a tactical manner. So that's the beginning part of it and creating that sustainability and those connections in country. And we do work with high level government officials because we go through an extreme vetting process. Anybody we work with, we're vetting out because we want to make sure that we don't end up bringing someone on that has poor intentions or ill intentions, right? The integrity of our organization is very important to us and we always aim to uphold that to the highest level no matter where we are. So you have that element of training the task force. Then it's pursuing the trafficker. So what does that look like? Well, that could be a nine-month stakeout of different places. One of the, our recent operations, we were able to rescue 83 girls, but it came from 14 different locations, oh, right? Wow. So 83 girls in the Caribbean, but we had to raid 14 different places. Well, it took eight to nine months of digging and figuring out, okay, who is this person? Where are they going? What's the traffic of it, right? It's, it's honestly, it is kind of like a movie when you think of it in those terms. I mean, we had people willing to sleep in their car to kind of track down these bad guys. So there's that element of pursuing the trafficker and pursuing the trafficker will later end up being prosecution of the trafficker, right? Our idea is that we create these models to where these bad guys are put away. But before we get there, we got to rescue the girls. So going in and rescuing those girls, but making arrests. And that is not something you always see happening with other organizations. And sometimes it's just because they don't have the network and people in place to be able to do that. That's why we spend so much time building that network and country. 
And, you know, there's nobody that's going to fight for their country and their people like the people that live in the country. They have a patriotism to that, a desire to see evil eradicated in their own home, you know. And so using those people and training them up to be able to combat this is so vital because they're going to be the ones training the next generation of people fighting for these injustices. So we go in and rescue these girls. And again, that looks like partnering with those in-country law enforcement. So we've rescued the girls. Now what, right? Now you've got 83 girls, and I'll talk specifically to that one. But what do you do now? There's so much that comes with that. You know, we like to think that, well, they're rescued. Yeah, but now they have a whole nother level of rescuing to do. They have an emotional, a spiritual, and a physical rescuing that still has to occur. They've been taken out of the bad place, but there's a lot more to go on. In the situation with the girls that we just rescued, some of them had cancer, STDs, obviously, because of what they dealt with. Mm -hmm. To give you some parameters around that, these girls were told that they were going to this other country to work to help pay off their student loans. You know, that was part of their grooming. And so they come to this other country to work and all of a sudden they land and they get taken away and they're forced to sleep with 15 men a night. You know, obviously they're living off of very little food, water, anything. The circumstances and the situations that these women were in, we can't even understand it here. They were in some serious circumstances, situations that were life-threatening to them, even on just the physical basic needs, you know, food, water, and shelter. Well, I think you bring up a very interesting point is that it's not just getting them out of the immediate danger, but there's so much that happens from a psychological standpoint, a mental standpoint of helping them to get back to some sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. But then I would imagine also having the certain esteem within them to try to keep themselves from getting into a similar situation again. Absolutely. And that is something we have to talk about. So often it's what they know at this point. Not only that, but then couple that with the shame of where you've been and what you've done. That is a hard fight. Not only are they fighting the emotional drag down of how did I even get here? Mm. So you got to peel that back and that takes time. It requires time. It requires pouring into them. It requires someone that they can talk to and be open with, you know, and so often they are, you know, they don't want their families to ever know what happened. In this particular case, a lot of them were mothers. I remember reading through one of the testimonies of the girls and she was like, I don't want my children to ever know what I've done. Mm. You're like, it's not what you've done. It's not you, you know, it's not what you've done. It's what's been done to you, you know, and so the shame that runs with that is so hard. And sometimes in some cases can put them right back into those same situations, like you said. To really combat that with these 83 girls, they were pursuing college, some of them. And so we actually, you know, we're obviously in contact with all of them. We've set up an advocate for them that's able to kind of talk them through the mental, psychological, spiritual aspect of things, right, to help them talk through what's gone on. And then we also have a medical team that works with them as well to take care of some of the other things. Some, You know, one of the girls was pregnant, as you can imagine. That was a hard one to work through, right, to kind of work through the medical side of all of it. And it just it varies depending on each case. So one of the girls wants to open up a hair care product shop. And so part of what we're doing, and again, we're not like other organizations in this regard because we go with what's needed of us. So we're working to establish that and help her establish that financially and putting the right people in line to help her as much as we can. They have a lot of aspirations, you know. In this particular case, it's like it was still a little glimmer of hope for these girls. And you don't always see that, you know. So often we look into the eyes of these women and children that have been trafficked and the hope has just been ripped from them. 
But some of these girls still had a glimmer of hope and desire, you know, and so we want to be the best we can at cultivating those desires and, you know, that better way of life for them. So we should mention at this point, you have headquarters that are based in Ashboro in Randolph County. Uh, You're a faith based organization. So that's where a lot of the motivation for what you're doing comes from. But you're a nonprofit as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, For our listeners out there that perhaps their interest has been piqued in Mm -hmm. hearing this conversation, how can they get to know your organization? a little more or perhaps what are some action steps that they can take? You can always visit us at lanternrescue.org. That is our website. Uh, You can also find us on social media. Instagram is a big platform. Updates on the case I just talked about and details of that case are on there. We try to kind of keep live updates going for our followers so that you have that. And you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, the other social media outlets as well. Uh, When it comes to the best ways to partner with us, there's always the financial need. I'll, I'll throw that out there because that is the biggest way to partner. You know, so often I think we have a desire to help. We just don't know where to begin and we don't know who to trust. And that's a hard one. You know, that's why integrity is such a big deal for us. Donating is always helpful, but also getting the word out there, right? Share information that you see on Lantern Rescue. Share information in general about trafficking. You know, be a voice. If you've got a platform, be a voice. That's a great start, you know? And then put some action behind it, right? I look at the inbox on our Instagram. We are not a big group. There's three of us that are constantly checking that information and comments and all of those things. So don't ever feel like you can't reach out to us. We're here. We have a newsletter you can sign up for on our website. We also have a prayer card we send out monthly. The newsletter is quarterly and it gives you updates on where we're at. Uh, We're getting ready to come up on 1,000 victims rescued. So be on the lookout for that. That for us, it's incredibly humbling because to be where we are now with this, it just, it amazes us. Anytime we see that number, we're like, whoa, whoa. You know, this started out so small and it has grown into something that has just impacted the world, and I hope that we can continue to do that. Lantern Rescue has a presence in several world areas, working with governments and law enforcement officials to find and dismantle human trafficking operations. Information about their work, along with information about the problem of human trafficking, is available at lanternrescue.org. If you or someone you know is a victim of human trafficking in the United States, help and resources are available through the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Their website, which includes a live chat feature, is humantraffickinghotline.org, and their 24-hour hotline number is 888-373-7888. That's going to do it for this edition of Central Carolina Journal. To hear any of our shows, visit www.883wuaw.com forward slash ccj or search WUAW on your favorite podcast app. If you have an idea for a future episode, give us a call at 910-814-8859 or email us at wuaw at cccc.edu. Central Carolina Journal is a public affairs presentation of Central Carolina Community College and its radio stations, 90.5 WDCC and 88.3 WUAW. I'm Fred Brucker. Thanks for listening.